Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. Which one's the best model? And... I was talking about how we have X1 in the model, X2 in the model, or X1 and X2 in the model. And note a few things that the total sum of squares was always 130. It's not always going to be 130, but in this hooked up example, it's always, they're going to always be the same. Because remember, what we're doing is trying to always explain, this is the thing I keep saying always. Um, Always trying to explain the variance in y. So in this case, there's y has 130 variances, units of variance, or we could use the sort of column version, which might be a bit better. So there's 130 total. Just x1 takes care of 50. Uh, just x2 takes care of 30. And interestingly, x1, x2 takes care of 80, and 50 and 30 is 80, and that should tell you something. There's no overlap between x1 and x2, so this is x1, and this is x2. So there's always a constant amount of variance of y we're trying to explain. So, like I said, in this case, I think I'd go either with this one here on the far right, which is x1, x2, or just with uh, the x1 version because they explain the most variance. You can make an argument that this is just a line and that's a plane, a little more complicated a plane, but frankly, two variables versus one is not a huge difference. All right. So, we've talked in the past about type one and type two sums of squares. Remember I mentioned that about, uh, when we were talking about uh, missing, missing values in empty cells with analysis variance. So there are things called type 1 and type 2 sums of squares. They're calculated roughly pretty much the same way. Type 1 sums of squares depend on the order variables go into the model. And type 2 sums of squares don't. So I'll explain this in a second, how this is sort of calculated. So let's say we have a three-variable model, x1, x2, and x3. So and when I say that, I mean it's y hat equals b sub 0 plus b sub 1 x sub 1 plus b sub 2 x sub 2 plus b sub 3 x sub 3 plus e. Like, you know that, that when I just say x1, x2, x3, I'm talking about a model that has all those things in it, right? Okay. And, and obviously an intercept, as I as mentioned. So, the type 1 sums of squares for x1 are just sums of squares regression for x1. The type, type 1 sum of squares for x2, now x2 is put in, is sum of squares regression for x1, x2. The type 3s, or sorry, the type 1s for x3, is all three. I mean, that's weird. Because the type twos almost look more reasonable, don't they? That's x1 given x2, x3 is in the model. x2 given x1, x3 are in the model. And x3 given x1, x2 are in the model. These are conditional, the type twos. The type ones are not. Now, if we were doing the calculations and we'd started with x2 instead of x1, the type ones change. Because it's about the order we put them in. The order we started doing the math in. Whereas, if that does not happen with the type 2 sums of squares. So type 2 sums of squares talk about unique variance explained in, in, in the predicted variable, in y, explained by a given variable. Okay. How about unique variance Different. You might look at type ones and go, well, why are they useful? Um, they have a use when you are doing when you're, when you're building a model, and I'll explain that in a little bit. Because right now the thing that looks most useful is unique extra variance accounted for, assuming everything else is in the model, type twos. And in fact, typically you'll be able to, when you see an input from something like SPSS, you get, it'll say you're the type 1s or type 2s, you're often you will get both, you get type 1s and type 2s. I think the title for the next slide is useful, why should you care? Well, if there's no correlation between the variables, then the type 1s should equal the type 2s. <coughs> 
if there's a correlation, the type 1s don't equal the type 2s. Now, there's always going to be a correlation between the variables, almost always. But you want that number to be as small as possible, that correlation. You want that to be as small as possible. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Why you want to be small. Okay. Now, what do type 2s give you? Type 2s give you the extra variation accounted for by having a variable in the model, given the other ones are already there. So in other words, they're, they're looking at unique variance accounted for by a given variable. They, in fact, allow you to do something kind of neat. They can actually give you something called the coefficient of partial determination, which is really, it's sort of the opposite of R squared, big R squared. Remember, big R squared is just the, the whole model. How much variance and why we've explained using all of these variables at once. The coefficient of, which is the coefficient of multiple determination, big R squared, coefficient of partial determination is a way to almost, well, not almost, a way to statistically control for other variants. So we suck the other variants out, and we look only at unique variants. Sometimes you'll see people talk about partial correlations, and that's what this allows us to do. So sometimes you'll see in a paper, a partial correlation was done. Uh, between income and education uh, and IQ, um, sorry, income and education, controlling for IQ, that's a, co that's a partial determination, coefficient of partial determination, or, or a partial correlation. Okay. So it's extra variation. So we have the coefficient of partial determination. It gives us the extra variation accounted for by adding in another variable. It's about unique variance. It's about unique variance that only it accounts for and nothing else accounts for. Nothing else to be measured anyway. Not nothing else in the universe, but nothing else at least to be measured. Okay? Square it, get the uh, partial correlation, which is actually kind of a useful thing. Or take the square root of it, I should say. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, again, why does this matter? Well, think about our model. And remember, just like with analysis of variance, everything's going to flow out of the model. All the assumptions, or a lot of them at least, come out of the model. Here's the model, right? Y hat equals b sub 0 plus b sub 1x sub 1 plus b sub 2x sub 2 plus dot, 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 plus b sub p minus 1x sub p minus 1 plus e. Right. It's a completely additive linear model. There's nothing in there about two variables together, is there? There's nothing in there mentioning and x1 and x2 together. Nothing. There's nothing in there that says, <clears throat> there's no like b sub 3, x sub 1 times x sub 2. There's literally nothing like that in there. There's nothing talking about overlapped variance between x, x variables. When we have overlapping x variables, we almost always do, we are violating an assumption. There's an assumption here. It's explicitly said here that this is how the world works, and the math's going to fall out of that. If that's how the world works, but it isn't, we violate an assumption. So this is a real problem. That problem, depending on how much overlap you have between x variables, and this problem is called multicollinearity. Multicollinearity. Okay? Multicollinearity bad. Well, lots of multicollinearity bad. Some multicollinearity expected. 
But let's say we think, let's think about the absurd, because sometimes an absurd example is really helpful. If we're predicting weight from height, that's been sort of a running example we've had, and I think we've all had that experience. You go to the doctor, they, they weigh you, they say how tall you are, they tell you to stop eating so much. <laughs> no one gets told you're too thin. So, would it make sense to say, okay, well, we measured your height in both centimeters and inches. Let's put both of those in to see if it has any more predictive value. Well, no. They're measuring exactly the same thing with a different scale. You wouldn't do that. It's patently stupid. You're accounting for, what are you doing there? You're accounting for exactly the same variance. You've got one X variable measuring height in centimeters, the other one measuring height in inches. Is that useful? Well, clearly not. In that case, again, the absurd example, you're measuring exactly the same thing. You don't want to do that. So we don't want to have multicollinearity because we're violating an assumption when we have multicollinearity. So what will happen? It changes the Bs, the estimate of the Bs, or as like I said, people often call them beta weights, which I shouldn't call them. Um, so, and the Bs are pretty important because those coefficients of the X variables, so remember, like, like let's just, let's make up a, let's make up a model for, uh, for height and weight. So your uh, weight, that's act, uh, y, in kilos, should equal some number, right, plus some other number times your height in centimeters. Okay? Let's force the intercept to be zero. <laughs> okay? Now, what's a reasonable, okay, how tall am I in centimeters? What, about 180? Yeah. And I weigh about 70 kilos. I think. I really know my weight in pounds, not kilos. <clears throat> I'm just at that long age where they, they switched from imperial to metric when I was in grade four, so I have a gauge measuring system. Uh, let's see, is it 70? Uh, yeah, not 70. <clears throat> Say I'm 85. No, 85 is about right. So, if I, and I'm just, we're doing this based on one data point, me, as I'm the platonic state of humanity, uh, my Schwarzenegger rest physique. So, I don't know, let's say, so we got 180, and we got 170, say 85, so 180. Case, so we're going to make it. So we get weight by predicting weight from height. So times. Yeah, we're predicting weight from height. This is six divided by two point four. That's good. Okay. So we say. Weight equals uh, about 0.5 of, of height in centimeters. Weight in kilos equals, I don't know if that's true. We're going to use that as a rough estimate. Okay. Now, we can make predictions, and that's fine. And I turn out to be perfect, perfect shape. So that's all well and good. Everybody's happy. And of course, we would probably need multiple regression here, or we'd have two regressions, one for women, one for men. We'd probably have four. We'd have one for women, one for men, one for girls, and one for boys. Who girls or boys. But that's Who cares? Let's pretend that we're all the same. If we change this, this is what we care about. If suddenly it comes out to be 12, because we violated the assumption of multicollinearity. Well, then I'm, uh, let's see, that means I'm, I'm way underweight and I should start just eating handfuls of butter. <laughs> handfuls of butter. And pork fat. 
eat better duck fat. God, I love duck fat. You don't like duck fat? You can buy duck fat. fried potatoes. Here's a tip for you all. For cooking. You can buy duck fat in the store. Or you can rent it from a duck, which is a little more confusing. But you get a duck in it. Um, if you fry potatoes, for example, in duck fat. Oh, man. It's even better than frying it in beef tallow, which is really good. But duck fat is the only way to make french fries. It's, it's really expensive way to make french fries, but it's delicious. Or you could take, anyway. Duck, duck, duck fat, you give me duck fat and beef marrow, I'm happy. I ordered one of the appetizers I ordered the other day when we were at the uh, dinner for the thesis students. I ordered the, 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 the veal marrow. God, it was good. Anyway, I'll probably leave right now and just go to a restaurant and order that. I'm back now. We don't want this to change. We don't want the beast to change. Even though it would mean perhaps the prescription from an MD eat duck fat. So, how many times can I say duck fat? Today's title of the podcast, how many times can I say duck fat? Um, we don't want that happening because that's, that's actually what we care about. That's, see, see why these coefficients are important, right? Because it allows us to make a prediction. Um, so how, we got to detect this multicollinearity. That's the thing. We have to know what's happening so we can do something about it. Well, the first thing to do is we can just look at a co the correlations between the x variables. And a lot of times when you start at what's called building a regression model, you have all these x variables. You might have collected you got one y variable you want to predict. Right? And I've, I've mentioned before my friend Todd doing this stuff, predicting the number of cigarettes people smoke per day. And he wanted, and he had that and 22 other variables that he measured. He came up with eventually a four-variable model that was as good at predicting how many cigarettes people smoke per day as getting um, a blood, uh, blood levels of nicotine and getting, um, sorry, salivary levels of nicotine and cocaine, which is a staple metabolite of nicotine. But people don't want to do that. People don't want to spit. And, well, they might want to do that, but then the MD has to take it off to a lab. Wouldn't it be better if I could give you, ask you four questions and you, that, I, that I know how many cigarettes you smoke? Way quicker. Way less invasive. So he collected he had number of cigarettes that you smoke a day and then 22 other variables. Wow. So he's got 22 variables. You can't build a model with 22 variables. It's useless. It's too complicated. You want to be able to explain a lot of variants, right? But you're going to have a lot of, co of, of, of correlation between them. Like he had one of the variables that ended up in the final model was time to first cigarette. How long until till you wake up? Before you, after you wake up, do you have a cigarette? Right? But that's probably going to be somehow correlated with what year did you start smoking? Like how old were you? It's also going to correlate with how many years have you been smoking. That's going to correlate, obviously, with how young were you when you started smoking, how old were you. They're going to overlap. They're going to be some of the same variants. You don't want that. So one of the first things you do is you look at all the correlations between the axes. Just regular person correlations. And you probably have to chuck some variables. You probably have to make a decision and say, which one do I not want? Now, how do you do that? Well... You look at something and say, okay, this one overlaps like x1 and x, we had x1, x2, x3, and x1 and x2 correlate by 0.2. One of those has to go. Which one correlates more with y? Or correlates less with other variables? And you just throw it away. Of course, if you're smart, you do it two ways. You throw it one way, then you throw the other way. Try both of them. Because it's usually not that clear. So multicollinearity, you cannot violate the assumption that there's no multicollinearity. Or that the assumption really is that it's a completely additive linear model. Another assumption is that it's linear, that it's, a, that it's about straight lines. That it's a, a coefficient times a variable, a variable value. We assume a linear model. What if it's not linear? What if the relationship isn't linear? Like, for example, a lot of drug stuff is, like, dose-response curves are almost always parabolas. 
the upside down parabolas, they're curved like this. So they're, they're curves, they're not straight lines. You can do something called curvilinear multiple regression. It's perfectly acceptable. It's just hard to do. Because you have to know, and you have to actually know what shape it is. Assuming something's a straight line is easy. And a lot most things are straight lines that we care about. But what if it's not? Oh my god, what is that? <laughs> what if it's the case that y in the real world, that y equals uh, that looks like it's, I think, is that a lambda? Lambda sub zero to the lambda one x e. All that is, all that is, is it's, 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 a, it's an exponent. The lambdas, I'm using those instead of vegas, because it's not a, it's not a, a straight line, so we use vegas for stuff. But what if? What if the world was like that? What if we had a relationship like that and we didn't know what to do? Well, there's a couple of things you can do. The first thing you do, you quit. Say, I said, I'm done. I don't want to play anymore. I'm going to become a poet. They don't do any stats. <laughs> But you probably are interested. You're probably interested in what happened. You collected all these data. So the first thing you would do is go, ah! And then, actually, if you took the logarithm, oh, look at that. If you took the logarithm, that, that thing, that monstrosity on the last page, you get log y equals log lambda sub 0 plus log lambda sub 1, uh, x, uh, x sub 1 lambda sub plus log e. Oh. And you know what? Mathematically, one of the things you can do, and you were all taught this in high school and have now all forgotten it, is you can drop, uh, as our teacher used to say, you can drop your logs and you always go, <laughs> so you can't. You can now go take all the log, the log uh, bits out, and then suddenly, look, it's, it's linear. Oh, yes. I was going to say, it's funny, the girl in the other classroom opened the door and looked down the hall after you screamed. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. For uh, danger. For danger. For danger. You want to see, I am the danger. Breaking bad reference for you. We're having fun. We're, we're, there's science in here. We, sometimes there's screaming. No one said there's, there's no crying in science, but there is screaming. So what we have here, in fact, is a relationship that is not linear, but it's intrinsically linear. We can turn it into a linear relationship simply by using a mathematical transformation. So an intrinsically linear regression is a, is a, is a non-linear relationship, or intrinsically, yeah, intrinsically linear relationship, is a relationship that is not linear, but that can be transformed into a linear relationship. And that's what we get here. It's an exponential relationship, but you can easily, using take the logarithm or something, turn it into a log, uh, sorry, turn it into a linear relationship. That's easy. Uh, for example, you guys, a lot of you guys have seen a slide that I use in neuropharmacology, which is the relationship between uh, D2 binding efficiency for um, antipsychotic drugs and the ED50 for antipsychotic drugs. And it's a straight line, except it's actually not a straight line. It's exponential. But to do it with regression, what they do is they take the logarithm and it becomes a straight line. It's perfectly, it's, it's mathematically completely sound and it's completely sensible. You just can't do multiple regression on a line that looks like this, or simply univariate regression. That's that line looks like. But if I take the logarithm, that, that turns into a straight line. Beautiful. Beautiful. A lot less screaming than you might expect. Now, not everything is physically linear. Um, so when you have an, uh, an exponential curve like that, you, you can, it's fixable. It's completely fixable. On the other hand, when you don't have that, uh, when you look at some funny relationship, you don't know. You oftentimes won't know if it's intrinsically linear or not. If you see this, you go, oh, I can fix that. That's, that's an that's a expansion curve. If you see a curve that looks like, I don't know, like that. Remember functions that look like that from high school? 
That's a quadratic equation. You can't fix that. That's quadratic. That's like y equals x squared plus 2x plus 3. That can't be fixed. Now you have to fit, now you have to fit a curve, and, and you can do this. People, I mean, you can't do it, but a computer can. I couldn't do it, but a computer can. I have to tell the computer, oh, don't fit, we're not using straight lines anymore. Our model is now a weird quadratic equation. It doesn't happen that often. But if you see that, Mm -hmm. Relationships like that do exist in the life sciences, not a whole lot. That's more of something you see in physics. Okay. So that's all fixable, right? Oh, but not always. It might be the case that there's other way you do. So we're also assuming, as I said, a completely additive model. There's no mention of interactions. There's no mention of x1 times x2, or remember we had alpha beta, like x equals beta plus alpha plus beta plus alpha beta plus epsilon. You could add something in. You could add in x1, x2. The thing is, and a lot of you guys asked me before, uh, when we were talking about analysis of variance, when you have that a by b uh, alpha beta uh, term in the, in the model, is that actually um, a... Is that actually multiplication? I would say not really. Here you're actually saying mathematically you're multiplying the value of x1 times the value of x2. So when you're saying something like that, it's tough to know what that term should be. Should it be x1 times x2? Should it be perhaps x1 to the x2? Hmm. It's hard to know. And this is where exploratory data analysis is, is really important and actually a really good feeling for things like, for mathematical things, for like functions. Which you may not have, but there are always people around you that have that. If you think there's an interaction, or there should be an interaction term. Or you can look at past research. Okay. So, one of the things we want to do is we want to select the best variables to explain variance and why. So if we have qualitative predictor variables, right, like hair color, might be a thing, I don't know, or a sex, male, female, sure, that's often, you know, we figure of sex differences. Sex, things that are qualitative are fine if they're binary. Remember that this is, you have to be able to do math with these things. So you can't put, give me y hat equals seven, plus three times hair color, because what's three black mean? It doesn't mean anything. So if it's binary, it's actually pretty good, because if it's binary, we just, we, we can code, we do what's called double, well, I'm gonna show you something called dummy coding. What you do is you just pick one, of, one value and call that one, and the other value, therefore, is zero. So if it's male versus female, right? We just say, let's make this a measure of maleness. Males get one, females get none. Don't get all sociological. I'm talking about white chromosomes you own, okay? You have one or none. And yes, I know people sometimes have two white chromosomes. Yeah, that's really, really vanishingly rare, okay? Male one, female zero. Or if you think that that somehow is oppressing you, female one, male zero. I don't care, okay? If y'all feel oppressed, check your privilege, man. So... That, so that's easy, ones and zeros. Ones and zeros, you can do that. That's really easy. How do you do it if you've got something where it's not binary? Because you might collect data like that. Oh, by the way, you use zero and one and not one and two. Because you couldn't use like one for female, two for male, because that's saying that male is twice the male that female is. It doesn't make any mathematical sense. You've got to realize these, this is actually doing math here. So zeros and ones actually make sense. One of the problems we often have is what, um, and I'll talk a bit about how to fix other cases that are qualitative. We use Leichhardt scales a lot in psychology. You know, one to seven, right? Strongly disagree, strongly agree. You know, there's a problem there from one to seven. The biggest issue in that is that is seven seven times the response that one is. 
don't know. Even a sum like that scale. So you've got a, a I don't know, what's, what's, what's one of them surveys? Maybe cognition research. Tell me the name of a survey. I don't know any of them anymore. I don't have to know any of that crap anymore. Uh, I don't know, a personality one. Uh, the, 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 Multi, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality, MMPI. Very good. Right, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI. Uh, and it's got subscales, and I think it's got an aggression subscale. And if it doesn't, let's pretend it does. And you get a 26 on it. I don't know if that's possible. Is 26 aggressions twice being 13? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know what we're measuring there. You know, what, what would the unit of aggression be? Kind of uh, one of the things, one of my students this year, uh, Jesse Merlade, what he did is instead of having people, this is actually quite cool, and this is not a bad idea, you go uh, strongly disagree to strongly agree, and you draw a line, and then you have people tick off where they believe they are, and then you measure it. That's a little bit better, and that sometimes people do that. The problem with that is then you end up to collect your data measuring lines, and it's really, really not fun. So you gotta be careful with Likert scales, just in general. I think in psychology, we should just be careful with Likert scales. Um, one of the things you can, it's, it's nice if we have experimental variables. We actually set up an experiment rather than just collecting a whole bunch of data. We actually put people into groups, and they can be zero and one in, are they in a group, a group or not? And there's never gonna be any multicollinearity between things that we've assigned to people. So they're kind of nice for experiments. Now, what do you do, though, in a, in a case where we have hair color? What do we do in a case we got hair color? And here, there could be a variable we could measure. It's conceivable. Or we could measure, I don't know, yeah, hair color probably wouldn't come up so much. But what about, what about mother tongue? Language you speak. Like the, one you, the first one you learned. Right? Everybody here learn English first, their first language? Everybody? Yeah? No, I didn't. Okay, good. What's yours? Nepali. But I like forgot it. Yeah, it's fine. Like, we, we got a different number. That's good. Anybody else? Oh, good. What's yours? French. French. Excellent. So we got a French and a Nepali. This is good. And then a bunch of, uh, a bunch of people spoke English first. Is that correct? Everybody? I don't care. No one's getting any extra points for having a different language. <laughs> but let's say we're doing something with our class. And we measure, one of the things we want to measure is your mother tongue. Because it's, we're doing something to do with uh, learning something. How in the hell are we going to get that mathematic? Because we can't go one, two, three. We can't go Nepali is twice the Frenchness that English is. That doesn't make any sense, can we? We can't do that. We could, however, have a variable called Englishness, or Englishosity, or Anglo-learned. Let's go with that. A. I get a one. Uh, let's see. Spence gets a one, because he doesn't say anything, so we're assuming he spoke English from the beginning. Jay gets a zero. Ah. See, that works? Then we go with Nepaliosity. <laughs> we get zeros. Ah, Jay gets one. Oh, now you see what we can do? Oh, we can do, do, do Frenchness. So we got zero, 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 one. Pretty cool. So you like this is called dummy coding. You end up, instead of having one variable called mother tongue, you have a, we have got three variables, one called Englishness, one called Frenchness, and one called Paulatonian. <laughs> this is neat because you can even have somebody now, for example. This is cool because you can even have somebody with this case, we can have somebody, let's pretend that, that, that Madeline was in this class and wasn't just marking your paper, she was also in the class, which would be a huge conflict of interest. But in her case, she could get a one, a zero, and a one. Ah, pretty cool. So we could deal with somebody who was raised by everyone. 
that's neat, because you and both of you at the same time. Okay. Did you go both at the same time? Or just no, no, fractions first. Okay, yeah, that's When did you start speaking English? Well, see my grandma babysat me and my mom and dad worked all the time, okay. so I was here speaking French. Okay, okay, interesting, interesting. I think Maddie's French was stronger than French when she was young, really young, but then she'd switch back and forth, but she'd speak, and she would never, I never remember her putting different, the other words, languages, word in a sentence, unless she didn't know the word in the other language. Our cats were all, we had a few cats, every animal was just a shot. Every animal, dogs. People should know. <laughs> that's, that's not true. That part wasn't true. So you see, you can do this dummy coding. It actually works. The problem is now we got all these extra variables. So if we had more than, let's say, it's, it's two, we have like three languages, which is one more than you normally expect in a Canadian classroom, probably. Um, but, you know, if we could have, what if we had like five different languages? Suddenly we have five variables, not one. So this can sort of diminishing return here. But dummy coding is cool. Okay, so we've got all the data. We've got reams and reams of data. The, the, the cigarette, I still actually have the cigarette per day um, uh, data set. I have an SPSS data set, and it's a real, when, when, we taught this, when I taught this class in Newfoundland, um, there was an actual complete lab section that had nothing to do with the class, it was just SPSS. And their final assignment Dwayne did this assignment, for example, was find the best model. That was all it said. So they had 500 records, so 500 people, with the number of cigarettes they smoked per day, and then 22 other variables. And I was just saying, find the best model. That was all it was. Wow. Doesn't sound easy. You know what? Actually, the class would either come out with a, a four-variable or a seven-variable model. It would, everybody would always come up with the same, which was pretty good because you learn how to do this. You build a model. So how do you choose which variables to use, which variables not to use? Because that all going to contribute to some of the variance. This is different from ANOVA. We're making a prediction with multiple regression, which I have capitalized for reasons of escaping. We're making a prediction. So you started with a lot of variables. And like I said, the cigarettes per day example, we're starting out with one predicted variable and 22 predictors. And in that case, you want, and again, as I said, in, in that, in that uh, data set, one of the things, we had two, we had two physiological measures. Um, salivary nicotine uh, and salivary cotinine. And typically what they do to determine how many cigarettes you smoke a day is they take a saliva sample and measure the amount of nicotine, measure the amount of cotinine. And they basically use a regression model. There's a model that's been built, I don't know, 85 years ago, and it says that's how many cigarettes they smoke per day. It does a pretty good job. Now what you want to do is use all the behavioral things and come up with something that does a better job than that. So something you go into a doctor's office and they say, I got five questions for you. They, 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 okay, you smoke this many cigarettes per day. Because I can tell you something, uh, anybody here who smokes knows this, you underestimate how much you smoke. When you, if, when you go to quit smoking, one of the key things to do is to count how many cigarettes you smoke per day. And the first time you do that, you go, holy crap, I didn't think I smoked 35 a day. I thought it was like 20. Right? Yeah, it's just not screwing around, that's all. <laughs> smoke, smoke properly. Screw the Olympics, go pro. I mean, it's. Uh... So, what Todd did is he actually gave people these little journals and they counted how many cigarettes they smoked per day, and then they, it was pretty cool. And he was able to build this model, which was more accurate than using their saliva sample. So, one of the things you could do is you could do all possible regressions. Okay, so if you've got three variables, there are seven possible models. Uh, it, whenever I say this, I'm including the intercept and I'm including the residuals, obviously. x1, x2, x3. x1, x2, x1, x3, x2, x3, x1, x2, x3. There are seven of them. Yeah, why not build all seven and see which one does the best job predicting with the least amount of um, complexity? Sure. 
think you do. What's three variables? With four variables, there's 15. Okay, it's a little bit more annoying, but you got 15 of them. With 10, there's like, just like a zillion. I think it's actually a zillion. With the 22 variables, and I would give this assignment every year, I would say you could do every possible regression, please don't. Your computer, there's not that much paper literally in the universe. And when I, I taught this course, when I taught it at U of T as a graduate student, and I said to the class, here's your assignment, find the best model. Now remember, don't do all possible regressions. And of course, some idiot always does all possible regressions. And I remember I made, my class made a mainframe U of T crash. So I kept getting calls to the left. Is Professor Brian back there? And I go, uh, yeah. One of your students is, oh, they're doing it again. Also, they usually get 200 pages of printing a term. I know the world's different. And, um, they start printing them all out. So all the printers in the whole university are taken up with some idiot's printouts and printed everywhere, buildings all over the city. I was like, I explicitly told them not to do this. I'm sorry. So you can't, practically, almost always the case, you can't do this. One of the things you have to do is, no matter how you're looking at them, you have to look at residual plots. So the residual plots are very useful. I talked about it when I talked about single regression, and this is when you look at an x variable and the residuals, and they should be random uh, and independent. You can find anomalies, you could find a funny you know, plot, I don't know, let's say you did a residual plot, like this, so, and, and your software will print that residual plots for diagnostic purposes, no problem. So you've got residuals here, and the next variables here, and you got zero here. And it's, you want something that's where it's uniform and unpredictable. So I can't look at the X and say, oh, I know where the residual should be. So it shouldn't be going, getting bigger or something like that. You can also spot something like this. Oh, there's one up there. What the hell's going on there? That's a weird data point. So you can isolate that and say, why did that happen? And you might, it might be a coding error. On that, on that smoking data set, one of the problems is there, there are a few coding errors. And one of them, people were asked how many cigarettes they smoke per day, and one guy said 400. You can't smoke 400 cigarettes a day. I don't think there's enough time in the day. Well, 40? It's probably 40. It's probably 40 and someone's fingers slipped and they were putting the numbers in, right? <coughs> but 400. 40 is basically what? Two small packs of cigarettes. 400 is 20 small packs of cigarettes. It's two cartons of cigarettes a day. You can't smoke that much and live. So it's probably 40, but you can throw it back as data because it's a mistake. Because you can't fix it. You can't go, it's probably a coding error. It could be, it is possible. When my dad was in the hospital, when he broke his back in 1966, and he was in the hospital down the street, I was wondering. My poor mom was sitting in a city, she didn't go alone with a little baby. My dad in the hospital for six months. Um, and there was a guy that we shared rooms, four guys in a room, and one guy who was in there who smoked so much. Of course, you could smoke in your hospital room back then, because it was the Mad Men era, and everybody smoked everywhere. But this guy was always smoking. He was finally told, because he was in there for like lung cancer. <laughs> And then the doctors were like, and this is like, don't give this guy any more cigarettes. Because they were all trading cigarettes with him. It was like, it was like prison work. And, <laughs> but this guy, that's he probably smoked half a carton a day. Right? And then at night, when they stopped giving him cigarettes, he would sneak around in the ashtrays and then put the old butts into a big piece of paper and smoke it. <laughs> that's not screwing around. That's like, I kind of have a little bit of admiration for that kind of behavior. Um, so, it's possible, perhaps, but unlikely that the person smoked 400 cigarettes a day, and that would show up here. It's like, what's going on? Why is that point there? Right? So you can spot an anomaly, and you can spot nonlinear relationships. Like, what if this thing went like, like if this sort of cloud of residuals, we call it, was like that? Well, then that means it's probably a curve, not really a straight line. We're going to do something about that. 
All right. You might think there's got to be a way to do this automatically. Yeah, there are ways to do this auto- to, to automatically pick variables. There are, there are basically three symbols. The first is called forward selection. It's an automatic method of, of the pre- picking predictors. You start with the x that has the highest r squared. So in our case, remember our old example, x1 goes in first. So it's the one that has the biggest correlation with y. Now you add the next variable in that gives the next biggest jump in R squared. You can see you can do this by hand, but you'd be testing maybe 20 different, it's impossible. Why not let the computer do it? Keep on going until the up jump in R squared is not big enough. Because it's always going to go up. Remember, R squared is always going to go up. It can't go down. Just R squared can go down, but big R squared cannot go down. And you might say to yourself, oh, not big enough. How precise is that? Doctor statistics boy. Hmm. Well, you, you could actually do it this way. There's this thing called. Well, hold on, don't do that. Let's go back. Okay. This thing called F star. What's F star? It's just it's mean squared regression for x one. Oh look, there's suddenly those. Type 1 and type 2, type 1 and type 2 sums of squares are actually useful. Um, X1, given X2 is in the model, divided by mean squared regression for X1, X2. In other words, this is seeing how much extra variance is accounted for by X1. There are defaults that are set in software for how big this thing is. Don't screw with them. Unless you really know what you're doing, you don't mess with them. Because they're sort of standards. So all this is saying is how much extra variance is being accounted for by x1 on its own. That's nice. And that's how we determine bit not big enough. Is it a significant jump? And it's looked up. It's basically distributed as f. It's just an f test, really. So it's called f star. So, and then you stop. When it's like, oh, not enough. We stopped. Done. Model. Done. Yay. That's one way to go. What about if we went the other way? What if we did backwards elimination, which sounds like something that might show up on Big Brother? Is that still on TV? I think so. Why? I mean, arguing case, you can't, right? It's useless and it's silly. But it's just to me an indication that Western civilization is almost dead. Backwards elimination is exactly the opposite. Let's do the opposite thing. Let's put all the variables in, put them all in. And then start dropping the ones that contribute the least. And keep going until you take out a significant amount of variance. So the smallest F star. You keep going until it's like, oh, the F star is too big now. Quit. Here's a model. Woo! Science. So stepwise, people love stepwise. This is the this is huge. Actually, it combines both of them, which is kind of cool. You might be surprised to know that step that forward selection and backwards elimination don't always agree with each other. You're like, huh? Yeah, they don't always agree with each other. They'll come up with two different models. Let's put the two together. Let's put the two together in a, in a sort of coalition government. So, let's combine the two. Let's go forward. So we start with forward selection. Biggest F, biggest F star. Check F star. Put another F, another one in. Now, now let's check them all again. Oh, what? Oh, now suddenly uh, we've got X1, X2, X3, and then we put bring X4 in, and then suddenly X2's F star is no good anymore. Well, right away. That's good. We can do that. That sounds like a compromise solution. That sounds great. So you keep going. You set, you, set, you set the criteria for adding and dropping, and this is another case where don't screw with the defaults. Because you have F star to enter and F star to leave. The F star to enter has to be greater than or equal to the F star to leave. 
Because if it's gone the other way, it, when the software just gets caught in the loop, it's like, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in, it just keeps going. And again, this is one of those things I told my I always tell the students, please don't mess with those. They're just leaving the way they are. And someone's always like, well, I mean, I'm really smart, and I'm going to play with the defaults. And then their computer locks up. Using all their processing cycles. I can't even torrent a movie in the computer lab. So I've heard people do that. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying it's, I know it's done. Do your torrenting at home using an anonymous proxy. But don't mess with that. See, the thing about this is, is that the automatic methods only look at those apps. That's all, they have starts. That's all they look at. They don't look at residual plots. They don't really look at directly at multicollinearity. If you've got two variables that overlap, the yeah, stars get smaller, fine, but they don't really directly look at multicollinearity. They're just automatic things based on one criterion, which is which is F star, to enter or F star to leave, depending on the method. They don't care if it's a nonlinear relationship. They don't look at those things. I bet you could build an algorithm nowadays that does that. But, I mean, one could. I, I couldn't do it. Don't do any of this stuff. This stuff that, in fact, you should do on your own. You actually have to use your eyes, right, and look at plots and go, ah, that's weird. And you have to look at correlation matrices and say, okay, those two variables correlate too much. I can't use one of them. So. Here's an approach that I've done. I've, I've used regression very rarely, but I have. Start with a correlation matrix. Get all your x variables and your y and a correlation matrix of all of those things. Pick a subset, right? You pick a subset of values, of, of, of variables. You're never, you don't, you're never gonna pick them all. You're gonna look, you're gonna look at it correlates 0.05 with y. Why would I even try putting that in the model? That's useless. I'm not even going to, let's just, you know, and you can usually get rid of a bunch of variables that way. Or you look and say, these two correlate with each other, these two x variables, one of these probably has to go, which one? And if it's small enough, do all the models. Like you can see if it's four variables, yeah, just run them all. Look at all of them, that's easy. Um, I would run all three automatic methods because they do that. They do the variance accounted for thing really well. And now I've already done the correlation matrix. I've already taken out the ones that are correlated with each other. Always check for outliers. Look at residual plots. See if you've got linear, nonlinear relationships. We're assuming, by the way, that I've done exploratory data analysis before I've done this. I've looked at every variable's scatter plot with y to look for nonlinear relationships. And I check for outliers along the way with residual plots, and then I put it away for a week. And I come back and I do the whole thing again. Because, because you're gonna miss something probably, because this is a this is more, it almost gets to the sort of more art than science angle. You're going to miss something. You're going to miss something. So just do it again. And you will come up with a somewhat reasonable model. A defensible one. Someone else might come up with something different. But like I said, when I had my students in the past just play with a data set, half of them would come up with one model and half with another one. And then neither one was wrong. You could defend either of them. You could defend either of them. Another thing you can look at along the way is you can look and see if the model is biased. When I say biased, I mean, is it over-predicting or under-predicting something? Now, how are we going to know that if we don't know reality? We can't really, but we can. there are ways to do it sort of theoretically. And one of the things to look at is a statistic called CP. Okay? Now, the expected value of CP equals P if the model is unbiased. No. What's P? Well, there are P minus 1 predictors. There are P minus 1 predictors. So it's the number of predictors plus 1. So if we have a, vera, uh, we have, we have a model that has 
X1 and X2 in it, if we have an unbiased model, it should give us a CP of somewhere around 3. If we have a two-variable model, it should give us something around 3. Okay? For example. And that's a statistic I, for the life of me, don't know how to calculate. But I can tell you that it's, it's spat out of every regression uh, piece of software, and it's a, just, it's a thing that a lot of people ignore, and it's a way to just detect bias. Is a model over-predicting or under-predicting? And it's only one piece of information. And it's also useful. I just don't have this on the slide. I thought I'd mention it now. Do you have questions about what we've talked about today? No, I really can't. <laughs> I wish I could, but if we had, like, actually, what we would have is something like, let's think of it this way. Let's, let's do a, something mythical where we have three variables, x1, x2, and x3, and x1. So we're going to see how they correlate with each other. That's where we're going to start. So that we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't do that. Five, that's two and one. one two, three, five. three and one is a So that means one and three is point zero five. And then okay, so for example, here's a correlation matrix. I would look at that right away and go, oh, x2 and x1 are correlated with each other. They're supposed to both be predictors. Do I want those two variables predicting each other? Or do, do I want do I want two x variables that that that, um, that overlap like that? The answer, of course, is no, you don't. That's multicollinearity. So what you're gonna have to do is make a decision. You would look at x1 or x2. Right now, this doesn't tell us anything. Let's look at how x1 and uh, y correlate with each other. And X2, so we got X1, Y, X2. We don't do that, we don't do that, we don't do that. So, how does X1 correlate with Y? Well, let's pretend it's, let's, let's pretend we live on Lollipop Lane and it's 0.7. And let's see, it's, it's Y and X1, so that's, let's shoot this damn thing up. That's Y and X1, X1 and Y, 0.7. And let's say this is point. Yeah, so x2 and, uh, no, that's wrong. We already know those, so let's just ignore them in the chart up there. y and x2 will make it uh, 0.2, and where's y? Yeah. y and x2 is 0.2, and y and x, yeah, what is it, x2 x is 0.2. It's pretty clear to me that we throw out x2. It only correlates 0.2 with y. X1 correlates 0.7 with y. We have to throw out one of them because of the multicollinearity. Let's throw out that one. Let's get rid of that one. And then we'll do our regression, our, 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 our predictor picking. So it's, that's the kind of process. Or if you do the you, you do the um, you do residual plots and you find out that Say we had x4 now, and there's your e. That should be there, it should be there. And it looks like this. So it expands like a cone, for example. No, 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 no. It's supposed to be random. That's not random, that's predictable. The bigger x is, x4 is, the bigger the residual is. That's not good. That violates an assumption. Or we see something like this. Freaking curve, it's not a straight line, we can't use that. No. Or we see a couple of really, well, what if we saw something like, there's all kinds of possibilities here, and I've seen some of these things. So that all looks great at the beginning, and then they all get really small. And they get big again. So it looks like some sort of weird dumbbells from the Flintstones. We probably have 
three different populations or something in there. What the hell's that? It's not a variable, it's a weird cloud of things. We can't use that. Can't use that. So that's the kind of diagnosis you have to do. And it's one of these things where until you actually get hands on doing one, which it, it's very daunting the first time you do one, because usually you've got 15, 20, 30 variables. You go, um, okay. And you start, like I said, with the correlation matrix, you usually toss out half of them, actually. So when, uh, like you were saying in the example, the two overlap, you want to get rid of the one that correlates less with Y? Yeah, because, because I mean, we, want to get, we, want, we have to get rid of one of them because of the collinearity. And the other the thing is, how are we going to pick which one? And assuming they both are random with their residuals and things like that, the only thing left to choose, they usually are, the biggest way to choose it is to say which one's going to do the best job for everything like. So let's toss the one that does the poorest job. This would be a shame because, well, 0.6 is so big. I mean, ridiculous, but if it was like 0.3 and 0.2, you go, oh, man, two variables that are correlated that much with Y, and I've got to get rid of one of them? But you do, right? Yes? Could you give a definition of multiple regression? <laughs> uh, multiple regression uh, is a technique that allows for a prediction model to be built uh, where many, um, where more than one predictor variable is in a linear combination, uh, or in a linear combination predicts a predicted variable. Or you can go y hat equals v sub zero plus v sub one x sub one plus v sub two x sub two plus dot 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 plus v sub uh, p minus one x sub p minus one plus e. That's a really, that's because that's a model, right? You can do mathematics. Remember, guys, we're going to have review classes, and I can also do a here's what the final exams like, and here are what I think are the major themes, and I'm going to be doing that on things like. And remember, it's also Facebook. I gotta turn this off right now because I gotta tell you a secret. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction at your science. We do what we must because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense crying over every mistake. You just keep on trying till you run out of cake And the science gets done and you make a neat plan For the people who are still alive
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.